welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. Um, this is our last. Um, this is our last week in our Being Jesus series, and it's been um, it's been great learning about how to be more like Jesus. And so we're going to end um, by reading out of Romans, and we're starting in uh, verse chapter twelve, verse three. And you can follow along on the screen. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. It's been a privilege to get to know Mike and Missy the last couple of years. Sound men always interfere. And uh, uh, it's a privilege to be here this morning. Uh, Our daughter Sarah was uh, part of this church for a season before she moved back home and deeply appreciated and sends her greetings. Uh, And so uh, uh, we travel now uh, considerably in in several different countries. And uh, when I'm preaching, you know, the The secret of being an itinerant preacher is that you only ever uh, have to make up three or four messages every year, and you just keep recycling them. And hopefully, uh, they get better and better, and the ones that don't, you throw out. But every so often, there's pastors that are really annoying, and they have a series. And I have to go back to work again. But I love the book of Romans. A lot of the work I did in my doctoral uh, dissertation was uh, dealing with Romans, and my mentor, my academic mentor, was uh, top authority on that. I love the book of Romans. Uh, I'm not quite sure where the series was before this, but I'm assuming maybe last week was Romans 12, 1 and 2. It wasn't. <laughs> See, there's the problem with series. They put them on the visiting preachers, but they don't follow them themselves. All right. Well, just as well, providentially, I have a comment to make in Romans 1, 12, verses 1 and 2 to lead into this. Because uh, in my opinion, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2 uh, is possibly the most powerful statement in the Bible about worship. And uh, just in case you're not familiar with it, It's, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Um, actually, the word in Greek means rational, and the meaning of the phrase as a whole is that to present your bodies, which is yourselves, not just your physical bodies, but yourselves as a sacrifice, which is living and holy and acceptable to God, that is worship properly understood. That's what the Greek means, in my opinion. It's worship properly understood. And then he adds, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, uh, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So Romans 12 begins with this exhortation to Christians that we're to present ourselves as a sacrifice to God on the understanding that such a sacrifice represents the true meaning of worship, worship properly understood. What that means is if you have grasped the command of Jesus to submit your life in all of its parts to him and place yourself at his disposal alone, you have understood what worship is. And the praise and the prayer and the music that we begin our gatherings with, and as you go from church to church, everyone has their own taste, and people are always arguing about it, and they don't like this, or they don't like that. But in truth, if you really understand what worship is, those things are secondary. I mean, I'm not dissing the worship team here this morning. They're very important. But the style of music and the type of songs that we sing, they change, don't they, from time to time. Uh, I'm more concerned with the theology behind what we're singing than the particular form of music. But in truth, the worship, worship biblically, is the presenting of your life to Christ. And if we all did that, all arguments about how we worship would stop immediately. They'd be entirely secondary. Because the outward praise and prayer and music is only the outward expression of what's going on within your heart. What is going on within your heart? It doesn't mean anything if your heart isn't right with God. And if your heart is right with God, you can be like a gentleman in the church in Michigan we work with that always positions himself right behind me is the most totally out of key person on the face of the earth, and, but he's worshiping, and I have to correct my attitude every so often. I'd rather have him worshiping out of key than uh, his heart not being right and his being in key. Of course, in a perfect world, he'd be in key as well as having his heart right, but we don't live in a perfect world, darn it all, we live in a fallen world. And the fallen world includes pastors who have series and force visiting preachers not to be able to give their excellent, outstanding messages that they've honed, sharpened, and polished in 22 other places, but they have to go back and work again at my advanced age, <clears throat> keeping my exegetical <laughs> tools in sharp. Thank you. He's a Southern Baptist. He's going to sit there saying, come on now and get real worked up and stand on the chair in a minute and start shouting. So Paul, and he finishes that off in the first couple of verses with this exhortation, not to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So resist the devil and submit to God. Now, Christians have a clear battle plan here. 
Present yourself to God, fight the devil's attempt to twist you into his patterns, and allow yourself to be shaped by the Holy Spirit, and then you'll be able to discern what's the will of God, what's good, acceptable, and perfect. Perfect in Greek means mature or reaching its fulfillment. Who of us here would not want a life which reaches its fulfillment in God? And if your life reaches its fulfillment in God, it has reached its fulfillment as it's meant to be. And so uh, worship is in the way that Paul presents it here to us. The foundation of worship is incredibly important because if you get it right, your life will reach its goal. We don't believe in fate as Christians. We believe in destiny. And God has a destiny and a purpose for each one of you, and it begins in worship. Now, the next three verses, which are the ones I'm supposed to be preaching on, uh, draw out the implications of the first two. And, yes, they're up there. Great. So, they're joined together by the word for at the beginning of verse 3. So, the question is, what does it mean to walk out this life of worship properly understood? And now he's drawing out the meaning of what he's laid the foundation for in the first two verses. So by the grace of the apostolic ministry that God has given him, Paul gives believers a very weighty command. It's addressed in, in Greek in a very emphatic form to every single one of you. Not just uh, to a few, but to every single one of you. And the command is, Christians are not to think of themselves more highly than they ought. So the playing field of potential church competition is instantly, in one phrase, completely leveled. Instead of thinking of ourselves more than we ought, they are to think of themselves soberly. Now he's explaining what verses 1 and 2, which is the true meaning of worship means, He's fleshing it out now. So to think of ourselves not more highly than we ought, but soberly, that's where true worship starts. And what he means by this sober self-assessment is fleshed out in the next statement. Each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. And if you want to put a title in this message, it might be, the message Mike forced me to preach. No, it might be uh, life in the measure of faith each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Every Christian, this command comes to every single one of you, every Christian has this measure of faith. The measure is the standard by which we ought to measure ourselves, and the standard, it says here, is faith. What's that? It's the faith by which we've been saved. The meaning is that every member of the church is to consider themselves soberly, they're not to inflate their own importance. Why? Because we're measuring ourselves by the standard of faith. Faith is the admission that each one of us is unworthy in ourselves. Each one of us is saved only by the grace of God. The Christians are not to focus their attention on the things that make themselves superficially superior, or maybe we feel make ourselves superficially inferior, those things are meaningless, but we're to focus on our common dependence on the grace of God. That's living in the measure of faith. In 2 Corinthians, Paul warns them that they're 
to stop measuring themselves against one another. I don't measure myself against others because I would fall, fall a little bit short most of the time. But we have this problem in the body of Christ where spiritually and in terms of our gifting, we're always measuring ourselves against one another. It's part of the curse of fallen human nature. Started with Cain and Abel, didn't it? And we've got to stop it. Because when we measure ourselves against Christ, we find out very quickly that we're on equal ground. And this is a very important point that Paul has to establish here because he's going on to talk about spiritual gifts. And spiritual gifts are one of those areas that can become a minefield for wrongful comparison of ourselves to one another. Now, the next statement, verse 4 and 5, begins with another four. And Paul's argument is all very logically connected. So what he's doing is he's explaining. Now he's talked about measuring ourselves by the common standard in faith. So he's going to explain in verses 4 and 5 what this means for how we look at ourselves in relation to other Christians. That's the people that are sitting around you and behind you and in front of you. It's a very concrete thing. He's not talking theoretically. How, what does this mean if I'm measuring myself by the common standard of faith in Christ for how I look at myself in relation to the people around me? And the answer is that only those who measure themselves by the standard God has given will discover the real meaning of being one body in Christ. That's the key. If you are measuring yourself by your own standard and you have forgotten the grace of God and you either think that, as one of my American friends says, you're all that in a bucket of chicken. I never quite figured out what that meant, but it sounds kind of good. Uh, you think you're something. Then you won't discern the body. If you think you're nothing, then you won't discern the body. Either you'll think that you're too good for it, or you're not good enough. No, we're all sinners saved by grace. We're all members of one another. It doesn't matter what your external status in life is, uh, materially, financially, educationally. It doesn't matter how outwardly prominent the exercise of any spiritual gift that you might, ha might have may be. We are all and equally one in Christ. The message of saving grace comes to every single one of you. So that's the foundation that's so important. Remember in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul talks about the unity of the body and he compares Christians to physical members of a body and they all have different functions. Some are more prominent and impressive, some less so, but all are equally necessary for the body to function properly. Now, what draws us together is the fact, he says here, that we are all in Christ. And that phrase occurs 21 times in Romans alone, it, along with in Christ, along with in the Lord and in, in Him. Those three phrases, which mean the same thing, occur 164 times in the letters of Paul alone. The word Christian, by the way, in the entire New Testament only occurs three times. And so this is a very significant concept for expressing what a Christian is supposed to be. We are in Christ. We're in Christ this morning. 
Everything God does is within the context of a body. You're not, you know, 125 or whatever. You're so widely dispersed. I don't know what's wrong with you. You should all come and sit together. But anyways. Amen. <laughs> but you're, you're, however many of you there are here this morning, you're not just a random bunch of individuals. You are all in Christ. And because of that, you're his sons and daughters. And because of that, whether you like it or not, you're brothers and sisters one of another. So you should like being together, maybe even a little more together than your seating patterns would indicate. (laughs) But we are in Christ, whether we like it or not. It's why when you travel around the world, and I'm sure a lot of you have traveled a fair bit, you find that you have far more in common with a Christian on the other side of the world that you've never met who has a totally different language and culture than you do with your next-door neighbor who might look exactly and talk exactly like you do, but doesn't know Christ. Amen? That's what I've always found. Because we're in Christ. So, the first Christians understood to be a Christian was more than having a certain belief. It was more than even belonging to a church. It was more than claiming certain spiritual experiences. Being a Christian is to be in Christ. And the only way that, that we can get to a place of unity amongst ourselves is to grasp the significance of this. You will never be united at the end of the day by signing statements of doctrine. You will never be united by agreeing on a code of conduct. You will never be united by worshiping in exactly the same way or singing the same songs. Our unity is because we're in Christ. That's the foundation of it. Now, every other way by which we identify ourselves as Christians has to flow out of that. So what we believe is important. How we act is important. But those things must flow out of the fact that we're in Christ or they're meaningless. People can claim to believe orthodox doctrine. People can claim to act morally, but they may not be Christians at all. There's a lot of legalism in the body of Christ. The question is, are you in Christ? And if you're in Christ, you need to find the depths of what that means for you. Church may function and does function in many ways. Church functions sometimes as a spiritual hospital for the sick that come in, the spiritually sick. Church functions as a teaching center, as it's doing hopefully at this very moment. Church functions uh, as a mercy outreach and evangelistic army, as you'll do this summer in St. Jamestown. But above all those things, church is family. That's the foundation. The rest just flows out of it. Without the basis of family, nothing endures. See, Christianity is totally relational. It's all about relationship. It's what distinguishes Christianity from other religions. We have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And because of that, we are related one to another in this intimate manner that he talks about where he says we're all in Christ. We're not little in little Uh, isolated bubbles where we relate to Jesus independently, we're all, whether we like it or not, in the same boat together. So you're stuck with me, whether you like me or not, and I am stuck with you. We are in Christ. 
And you know what? If we could grasp that, we'd never have any more problems and divisions in the church. We wouldn't. I mean, there would be Christians that would worship in different manners. That's fine. But they would have great relationship with one another. And within the community of our own fellowship, about 95% of all dissension would disappear overnight. If we could just get this. Can you live according to the measure of faith? The measure of faith is, folks, that you're nothing. That's the great news. That's not a very seeker-sensitive message, is it, here in Jarvis Collegiate this morning? But you're not anything. You're nothing. You're a bunch of nobodies. But God has given you the status of his sons and his daughters by grace. And let me tell you, grace is more than a theological concept. Grace is a divine energy. Grace is what picks you up off the garbage heap and puts you down in the palace of the king. Grace changes your life. You'll never overcome sin by willpower. It's grace that'll do that for you. Grace is the power of God at work in your life, taking hopeless people like you and me, depositing depositing us into Christ and making us part of God's family. And if we could only see that, our secondary issues would disappear. Well, the last part of this addresses the topic of spiritual gifts. So see why it's so important uh, before we come to the question of who's gifted and who has something to offer and what they have to offer, he's got to lay this foundation, number one, of what real worship is. Real worship, let's, you know, the Corinthians didn't get it. They were off on their you know, all their disorder and so on, and they had manifested gifts of God in the supernatural, but they were messing around with something that they didn't understand. They had charisma without character, and it was all going wrong. And so (coughs) Paul says, look it. And by the way, Romans was written from the city of Corinth. He was in Corinth when he wrote this letter. So he had these things in his mind. And so he's saying, Let's remember that worship isn't all a hoo-ha of people getting up and doing their own thing, like a spiritual karaoke or something. Um, Worship is the sacrifice of your heart and life to God. And then you've got to understand that uh, we live in the measure of faith. We understand that we're nothing outside of Christ. The playing ground is completely level. And then we understand that uh, God has... Uh, taken us who are nothing and who are saved by grace and incorporated us into his family and we're all one in him. And so once he's established these things, he can talk about spiritual gifts because he's writing from Corinth where it's all gone terribly wrong and some people think they're the bee's knees and other people are just cast out and some people are whining and dining and feasting and other people are poor and hungry and communion is a mess and everything is a mess and the body is a mess and there's no relationship and God help us. And sometimes I think, why, why can't we read the Bible and learn from the lessons of history? Because we, we just repeat them, unfortunately, all too often. But after all that, he comes to this last part, which is the topic of spiritual gifts. And he says, we all have gifts, so let's use them. Now remember, he's addressed every single one of you. So there's nobody excluded. That means every single one of us including every single one of you today, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you've received the Holy Spirit, you can't be a Christian unless you have received the Holy Spirit. We understand that. So therefore, every single one of you has spiritual gifts. 
whether you realize it or not. I'm giving you a revelation. That might be the only reference to revelation I do make in this message. I do tend to sneak them in if I possibly can. But uh, I'll give you a revelation. Every one of you has spiritual gifts. Nobody is excluded. Now, Paul looks at these gifts from a very practical perspective. Uh, They're to be used for the health of the body as a whole. The gifts are given for the body. They're not given for the exaltation of any of its members. And so we offer the gifts we have without regard to self-promotion. Now, within the gifts of the Spirit, and uh, I've written a, a book, and I do have... I do have notes. Mike told me he didn't want them, and I had to go to a rejection seminar after that. I felt so hurt. But uh, if he changes his mind, uh, I've got a chart at the end of this of all the gifts of the Spirit in the New Testament. And there are different types and categories of those gifts. Um, And I'm not even sure that they're they're an exhaustive uh, list of all the gifts that there could be. But sometimes when he goes and talks about uh, gifts of the Spirit, uh, some of which are office gifts like apostles, prophets, and pastors, and so on, and some of which uh, are like prophecy, um, where he seems to emphasize with apostles and prophets and prophecy that these have a more significant, you know, strategic importance, and he does indicate that. But that kind of ranking is just a practical or functional ranking. It is not a spiritual ranking. So an apostle may be more foundationally used than somebody else, but they're no more valued by God than the people who lead the worship or put out the chairs. And so true spiritual leaders go out of their way to avoid finding pedestals to stand on. Uh, Personality cults and a hype surrounding leaders in the body of Christ is abhorrent to God and always ends in disaster. I don't know why we never learn. So there, is, there may be a practical significance, uh, outwardly speaking, where one particular gift is more prominently used than another, but we have to bend over backwards to listen to what Paul has to say that we all live in the measure of faith. So Billy Graham had it right when he said the people that put out the chairs, he couldn't do anything except for them. He was the mouthpiece and got all the attention, but in terms of the kingdom of God, he was no more valued than any of the volunteers that were working for him. I often think of, this is my notes, which is dangerous, but uh, back in the 1860s, and I don't know, Mike may have told this story, it's a great one. Uh, there was a, a shoe salesman in the city of Chicago, and he ran an outreach, much like you might run to some of the poor kids in St. Jamestown this summer. He ran an outreach to the kids on the street, And a young boy came to Christ. And that young boy's name was D.L. Moody. And Moody grew up, and he led uh, another famous evangelist to Christ. And that evangelist led another evangelist to Christ. And 
it all got down to an evangelist who was a direct spiritual descendant of Moody that was preaching in, I do think it was North Carolina, one day in a backcountry meeting and a young teenager called Billy Graham got up and gave his life to Christ. And Billy Graham went to London in 1954 at Wembley Stadium and uh, a young man called Tony Tyndale came up and received Christ and about 17 or 18 years after that, he led me to the Lord Jesus in a basement room at Victoria College in the University of Toronto. And I owe my life to a shoe salesman in Chicago. Join me. Hey. Uh, I don't, I don't, uh, and by the way, Tony, Tin, Tony was a direct descendant of the brother of William Tyndale who first translated the Bible into English in the 14th century and was burnt, burned at the stake for it. And yet, he had to be led to Christ by a backwoods kid from North Carolina. Isn't that funny? How God reverses all these things. But I don't even know the name of that shoe salesman. I looked up the story once to get his name, and I forgot it. But when I get to heaven, I'll be wanting to find him and thank him for what he did for me. See, uh, there's no, there's a level ground right at the foot of the cross. And it may seem that some are more prominent, but in truth, we're all equally valued in the sight of God. And unless everyone does their job, this won't happen. I mean, if Mike came down here on a Sunday morning and Missy and nobody else uh, of the team that puts in all the work, you come here an hour beforehand, there's people doing all sorts of things, if none of them showed up and the rest of you came, it would be a disaster, no matter how good the preaching was. He couldn't do it. See, we depend on one another, don't we? And I'll tell you another thing. You're all ambassadors of Christ wherever you live and work because the kingdom of God, I was having a conversation with David here before the service, the kingdom of God is wherever you are. The kingdom of God is the dynamic rule and reign and power of God. And wherever you go, you're an ambassador of Jesus Christ in that place of work or employment or study. No matter where it is, the place that you live, uh, you bring the kingdom. Because as Abraham Kuyper said, there's not one square inch of ground on this planet over which Christ does not cry, mine. Including the place that you live and work. And the pastor in the church may be prominent Sunday morning, but he's not the ambassador of Christ in all the multiple different places where you are and go this week. That's you. Every one of us carries enormous significance in terms of who we are. All right, I better quickly close uh, uh, before I get kicked out here. Uh, Paul gives several examples of the spiritual gifts uh, in the last couple of verses. Prophecy is to be exercised. I think the ESV mistranslates it in proportion to our faith. I think it actually is or should be translated prophecy is to be exercised according to the standard of faith because that's what he's been talking about. What that means is prophecy, of course, it can be outwardly very prominent, but it's to be exercised in line with the grace of God that's revealed to us in Christ in a humble manner. And anything that is inconsistent with true belief in Christ and what he's done for us is not from God. And so any prophecy where you're left uh, more with the impression of the person than with what was said, or if 
the, what was said draws more attention to the person than to the Lord Jesus Christ, then rip it up and throw it away. Service uh, is, uh, comes from the word, there is the word diakonine in Greek. We get the word deacon, and uh, you go back to Acts 6, and that was the ministry of serving the needy and suffering. So service is not just the attitude of servanthood. Every single one of us is called to be a servant, but it is the particular aspect of serving the poor and the needy. And then he talks about teaching. And teaching, interestingly, is recognized as a gift just as much as prophecy. So prophecy may reveal supernatural information, but we have to remember that teaching un unlocks the supernatural truth of the scriptures. And so that's a reminder that true teaching has to go beyond simply the ability to exegete or interpret passages of Scripture or give an academic lecture. John Calvin said in his commentary in 2 Corinthians that you cannot understand the Word of God without a revelation of the Holy Spirit. And remember, they had their minds... The veil was in front of them, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. They needed a revelation of the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is there is liberty. doesn't just refer to, you know, charismatic dancing around and so on, though it might. But where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, in context, refers to the liberty that God gives us to understand the Word of God. And so true God and Spirit-anointed teaching is going to reach out and make the Word of God alive for you. Do you understand what I'm saying? So hopefully you come out of this, and I've, I've, it's teaching is just scattering seed. That's really what it's doing. You can't grab a hold of all of it, but hopefully I'm sowing seed in you that something that I've said has touched your heart, is rooted in your life. You take it back to God, and it changes something in your life and your heart and your attitude through the power of the Spirit, and then we've got... Uh, good teaching going on. And then he says, exhorting, which I think is the ability to stir a congregation up to put into action the teaching that they've received. The verb is pericoline in Greek, which is linked with prophecy elsewhere in the New Testament, and it could refer to a kind of prophetic teaching. There is a teaching which is more exegetical, there is a teaching which is more inspirational and exhortatory, and we need both in the body of Christ. And then contributing in my opinion, includes the God-given ability to generate wealth. Now, there are people who are kingdom wealth generators. I had an argument in Britain a few weeks ago uh, with somebody over this. Uh, you know, we, we need not to look down on or consider as unspiritual wealthy Christians. God gives Christians, certain Christians, the ability to generate wealth. I wish I was one of them but I am not. I went through the border once, and the border guard said, you know, Americans being very surly as they are, the border guard said, uh, well, are you, taking, are you coming here to take the tithes and offerings back? <laughs> and I said, no. And he said, do you have $10,000 in cash on you? And I felt like saying, who do you think I am, Joel Osteen? No, <laughs> God forgive me. <laughs> but I didn't, <laughs> because to American border guards, you always say, yes, sir or yes ma'am, or no sir, no ma'am. I said, no, I do not have $10,000 cash on me, and he let me through. 
I'm not quite sure what that has to do with anything. It just got me off track. <laughs> so contributing, that's it. There are people, though, not me, but there are people, maybe some of you here, that God will make wealthy. And if that is the case, then you ha- you, 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 God will hold you to a high standard of accountability, right? But the reason he's made you wealthy is to make you a kingdom wealth generator so that you can give and give and give. And we've known people in our lives, and we have people in our, our lives still, that that benefit the kingdom and have benefited Elaine and I through their generous giving because God has given to them and they allow finance. It just flows through them like a conduit, like any other grace of God. We're not supposed to be cisterns that, you know, take in everything, whether it's teaching or spiritual gifts or money or anything else. We're just conduits through which the life of God passes to somebody else. And that's how it works. That's how church is supposed to work. So contributing is people who have generated wealth, and it may not be, but a particular gift of contributing is most likely people who have money to spare and who love to give it away. And there to do it, it says, in simplicity or honesty, which means the giving is not to be done to polish the reputation of the giver, but just to pass on what God has in grace, by grace given to them. And then leading... It comes in between contributing and doing acts of mercy. Elsewhere in the New Testament, this word proestaminos refers to church leadership. But here, I think, it refers to leading in the orchestrating of giving and mercy ministry to the poor because it comes right in between the contributing and the doing acts of mercy. And the doing acts of mercy um, refers to the church's ministry to the afflicted. And when it says in the last one, doing acts of mercy, you're to do it cheerfully, that's used a couple other times in the Bible in relation to uh, helping the poor. And I think there is an inward joy that comes to the one who realizes that, that in the person of the needy, he is meeting the Lord himself and is given an opportunity, as my mentor wrote, to love and thank him who can never be loved and thanked enough. Amazing. Grace of God. It's significant to notice that four of the seven gifts in this list are connected with providing financial help and ministry to the poor. It's a thought, isn't it? In our own movement of churches, and there's a South African brother, and he preached a, a very powerful message once on remember the poor. And it changed the whole focus of hundreds and hundreds of our churches around the world so that remembering the poor was a, a component of, of what all those churches were trying to do because it's very biblical. It's why the Roman historians marveled that among the Christians there were no poor. Well, in these verses, we're invited into the great adventure of faith. But this life can only be lived by one measure. Take it back to the beginning, the humility that comes from the daily recognition that none of us deserve anything from God. We're all saved by his grace alone. There is no entitlement for us to live for ourselves in this world. Worship properly understood is the sacrifice living, holy, and acceptable of our lives to God. We desperately need the grace of God. I do. We desperately need the gifts of his spirit. I wish we'd stop arguing about the work of the spirit 
and just start inviting the Holy Spirit in, in which case he'd sort out the misconceptions. But we desperately need the grace of God. We desperately need the gifts of his spirit, such as these that I've talked about this morning, in order to fulfill the commission to advance the kingdom to the ends of the earth. But the, and, and I'm a great believer in the fact that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that it belongs to him who created it, that we're not supposed to hide away in a holy huddle because the world has gone to pot and the devil waiting for us to be raptured out. And I will get into the book of Revelation in a minute if I continue down this line when I'm supposed to be closing. But the world belongs to Jesus. Even though it's full of garbage, we're sent to clean it up. And the great news for us today is that while God can do a lot with a little, he can do everything with nothing. And that's us. Amen? That is us. When we realize we're nothing, we can catch the wind of the Spirit to start doing things we would never have dreamed possible. Church never works in our own strength when we're just doing the possible. Faith always deals with doing the impossible. And that's where God gets glorified and his kingdom moves ahead. A people living by the measure of faith who are totally dependent on Christ will release the greatest harvest in history. And you can be part of that here this morning. Let go of what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. Welcome to the wonderful world of the kingdom. Amen. Let's, thank you. let's, let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have incorporated us into yourself. We can't really understand it, no matter how much we talk about it and read it in your word. I pray, Father, this morning that those who are here that have felt, what have I got to offer? Or maybe they felt, ah, I messed around, I failed. Or how can God use me? Or they've had a disappointment or whatever. Or Jesus, please just come to those people this morning and uh, send the empowerment of your spirit to them because that's really where we're all at. We've all messed up. We've all failed. None of us is equipped. But Lord, thank you that by grace we can step in. Never mind what happened yesterday. Today we can step into the rest of our life. And I pray, Father, for all the incredible diversity of gifts and abilities and talents that's represented in this group of people here this morning and the potential to release the kingdom in the next 30, 40, 50 years, wherever they go. Lord, please let not one ounce of that be lost, but release it for the glory of your name. Amen. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.